Welcome to Going Kosher class number two. I'm Hadassah Bauer and I am really happy that you have joined me with the second class. Um, last week we talked about what foods were kosher and where we could find that in the Torah and what uh, animals were kosher and how to butcher them and make them kosher for us to eat. We also talked about the spiritual side of eating kosher and that we can elevate the mundane um, up to a higher level, something as, as simple and that we do every day as eating. Um, by eating kosher, we can actually elevate it to something more holy. Um, all of those things were covered through chapter one and two. Today we're going to fly through many of the chapters in order to get to the actual how-to to do the, the koshering of your kitchen. Um, from the moment that Moshe taught the Jewish people the kosher diet laws, keeping kosher became a way of life for the Jewish people. Through the years, uh, the history shows many countless stories of our ancestors um, being very determined to uphold the kosher laws through persecution. It seemed like any time um, a ruler wanted to come against us, uh, the first thing they would do would be try to make us not eat kosher. And uh, the feeling with that is, is, you know, if you can stop a Jewish person from eating kosher, you can keep him from all the other mitzvahs. And it becomes the end of kosher, uh, the Jewish life, by taking away eating kosher. Um, they really felt that it was that first step to obliviate, uh, obliviate the Jewish life. Um, through the years, persecutors of our ancestors, um, they really tried to use that tactic. But, you know, our ancestors, they did hold fast and they did maintain eating kosher even in all of the trials. Um, and with that, it seems like for how easy it is, no matter how much we complain that Oklahoma doesn't have kosher food, um, we do. We have so much more than what our ancestors ever would have had. Um, so we have to kind of keep that in mind. Um, the Jewish people were given the kosher laws at Mount Sinai, and they were really eager to implement them as were all of Hashem's mitzvot's. I have a story I want to read out of the Going Kosher in 30 Days. Tradition tells us that when the Jews learned the kosher dietary laws, they realized that before their utensils could be used for food, they needed to be kosherized. To remove the non-kosher impurities and flavors absorbed in them. Until each family managed to do this, they ate only dairy foods which didn't involve a great deal of preparation, thus requiring the use of non-kosher utensils. We eat a, a dairy meal on Shavuot thousands of years later to recall our ancestors' simple faith and willingness to follow God's directives perfectly and completely and without delay. So I didn't know that, that that was the story of why we do eat dairy foods on, on Shavuot. But it makes sense because at Mount Sinai, our ancestors were so anxious that they said yes 
to the commandments before they even really knew what they were. And for me, that gives me lots of encouragement when I feel that it's hard. Um, Because for us, it really isn't as hard as it used to be. Only a few generations ago, preparing a kosher meal really was a lot of work. Milk, cheese, and butter were all obtained from one's own cow or from the local dairy farm. Chicken and cattle were raised at home or or purchased at a live market. They were then taken to the local shochet, a religious Jew proficient in the laws of ritual slaughter. The women were skilled in plucking and inspecting the chickens and looking at their organs to make sure that they were healthy. Chickens were then soaked in containers of salt water, after which each part was thoroughly salted and let to stand, allowing the blood to drain, following which you rinse the chicken and soak it all again. If nothing is found to void the chicken of its kosher status, now that chicken would be ready to cook. Fortunately, today, all we need to do is go to Trader Joe's and pick up some kosher chicken. (laughs) It is a lot easier because all those steps are already done for us. And the same thing goes with eating uh, the kosher meat. Uh, One of the things I wanted to read was a little bit, it's very long, about what is actually involved in making a cow kosher. But there are a few things um, that really stood out for me. One of them was that um, the knife must be razor sharp and no nicks in it or anything. And if it wasn't sharp enough or had nicks in it, it would not be valid for him to use that knife. And they also would take another choquette to look at your knife. So you didn't even examine and decide your knife was sharp enough and nick-free. Someone else would decide on that. Um, they followed these laws straight down to the detail where, where the knife had to be twice as long as the neck of the animal that it was slaughtering. Um, and that way they could just draw through with one swipe so that um, instantly the animal would become unconscious and then shortly thereafter it would die. That way it just seemed more humane um, and that was a big deal for uh, our ancestors in the beginning and still should be a big deal for us. Uh, Keeping the animals kosher is one thing, but being humane to them is something else. And having them die quickly, that is definitely something that is more humane. Um, After the animal has been ritually slaughtered and is dead, uh, the animal is hung upside down so that the arterial blood can drain out. Um, Then at that time, the shokat looks for um, any kinds of signs that might possibly be disease within the lungs, um, they, they just look through all the organs to make sure that this was a healthy animal. That is not necessarily done to this extent to non-kosher meat. Um, if they find anything, uh, any fault in the animal whatsoever, it will become not kosher and it will not be sold as a kosher meat. Some of that meat would then be able to be sold um, in a regular market, but not in a kosher market. Once the animal has been drained of its blood, 
that cow, that beef, um, will then have uh, the intestines and the arteries and the sinews removed. Um, Some of the fat we're not allowed to eat either. And so all of that adds to a special care um, that the butcher uses to make that meat kosher. It's not just that somebody has prayed over the meat, but they have taken care that um, the fats that we are told in the Torah not to eat, we don't eat, and they are removed from the animal. Um, after that, the, the animal goes through a process of soaking and salting, and that just brings up even more um, of the blood so that all of the blood that we are not allowed to eat is then removed from the animal. Um, so there is a lot more work and sometimes we sit and go why is that piece of beef so much more than the piece of beef that's not kosher but when you think about the care that's given um, to the animal so that it has a humane death so that it is a healthier piece of meat um, it is definitely worth the higher price I read an article recently that said that over 40% of the people who eat kosher meat do not do it for religious reasons, but because they feel it is a healthier piece of meat than one they could buy at their local butcher. And so that concept of it's not just a piece of meat that's been prayed over, but there is more to that is really getting out to the public and other people are buying kosher meat other than Jews. One of the things on the day two of our book, Going Kosher in 30 Days, is the misconceptions of what kosher is. And I have heard a whole lot of them um, in the years that we have been on this walk. And some of them in here are pretty uh, typical ones. So I'd like to go over a few of them. And uh, first of all, the word kosher just really means fit or proper. Um, it doesn't mean clean necessarily, um, and it's not necessarily healthier because there is some really junk food kosher stuff you can buy, and you could eat, you know, drink Coca-Cola, and I don't know, there's some really yummy kosher cakes at Trader Joe's and Walmart, and none of those are very healthy, but they are kosher. So kosher doesn't necessarily mean healthy either. Um, We eat kosher because Hashem has said to. And um, we don't try to pick and choose which laws we want to observe. And a lot of people will try to explain, well, we don't necessarily need to eat kosher anymore because now we have good refrigeration or now we can cook things properly. Um, The Torah tells us that we are not to add a word which I commanded to you or diminish from it. So if he says not to eat it, that is our reason. We don't necessarily need to find a reason, though I think that we will find that many of the food that Hashem has said for us not to consume really isn't healthy in the end anyways, um, as far as, you know, eating pork and that. Sometimes the science takes a, a time to catch up to what Hashem's word is, but we aren't to look for those reasons. We just know that Hashem has said it, so we do it. Um, 
So the number one uh, misconception about kosher is that, you know, it means clean and it really doesn't. Um, it does mean fit or proper. So kosher food is fit and proper for us to eat. Another misconception is, is that I'll go hungry. I'll never find food. But if we think about it, um, there are over 50,000 kosher items on the grocery store shelves. You have fruit and vegetables, nuts and seeds. They are all kosher. Um, Many brands, uh, the Great Value brand at Walmart, is much of that is kosher. Aldi's brand has a lot of kosher foods. Trader Joe's also. And if you go to Trader Joe's, ask them for a list of their kosher foods, and they will print it out for you. And I do believe it's also online. Uh, Trader Joe's sells kosher chicken, beef, turkey, and they have a lot of other things that come and rotate uh, I've talked to um, the meat manager there at Trader Joe's, and he said that anything that is on their list that they can order, if we let them know on Sunday, he can have it in on Thursday, um, even if it's not something that they might currently be stocking. Because I know sometimes they'll have chicken breasts, sometimes they'll have turkey breasts, sometimes they'll have brisket. Um, but all of these items are actually on their list. So if it's something that they can order, even if they weren't planning on putting it on the shelf that week, if you let them know Sunday, they can have it in in time for Shabbat. Um, kosher cheese can also be found at Walmart and Trader Joe's and Whole Foods and some at Costco. Um, because the problem with cheese is the pork rennet. If you can find uh, microbial rennet or vegetarian rennet, um, that would be your next best thing if you can't find kosher. Um, and some of the kosher uh, cheeses are hard to find. But if you do look, Aldi's brand, most of Trader Joe's, Costco, they all have um, either a microbial or a vegetarian rennet uh, cheeses. Uh, kosher chicken and beef broth, they're a little tougher to find in this town. Imagine brand sold at Whole Foods and at Reesers has a no chicken broth that is kosher and it's, it's parv. It's actually made without meat, um, but it tastes very close to chicken broth. Um, if you doctor it up with a little celery and carrots, nobody will know the difference. Um, you can buy the kosher online and you will be able to find uh, the kosher broths at Pesach time at uh, Trader Joe's, or not at Trader Joe's, I'm sorry, at Reesers next to the, the Whole Foods out there. Um, so, yes, in some ways it's a little bit harder, and I know now I go to three grocery stores sometimes to find everything. Um, it's no longer one-stop shopping, but, you know, that, like we talked about last week, is a way that we praise and worship Hashem. We take the time so that we feed our families the kosher food. We look for the hectares. Um Number three uh, misconceptions is that the kosher law is obsolete. 
uh, Yeshua did not come to break Torah, but he came to uphold it. Some people think that now that we have a refrigerator and the ability to cook foods better, we don't need to keep the, lo- the kosher laws. Kosher style is not the same as kosher. Sometimes restaurants, or I've even seen pickles, being kosher style, but they're not hexured. So kosher style is not necessarily kosher. Some people believe that the kosher laws are only for the ultra-Orthodox Jews. And um, so if, if somebody is a Reformed Jew or a conservative Jew, they feel that they don't need to keep those laws. But every Jew, regardless of his level of Jewish awareness or observance, has a Jewish soul and is required to fulfill the mitzvahs of the Torah. Um, I've read vegans don't have to be concerned about eating kosher since they don't eat meat and dairy. And in that aspect, part of that is true. They don't have to worry about meat and dairy, but they do need to look for hexures if they buy anything that is processed or in a can. Um, Sometimes the uh, vegan kosher cheeses are pretty good. Um, there's a Parmesan kosher cheese that's vegan. It's pretty close to Parmesan cheese. And um, so I, I enjoyed that one. I purchased that one at uh, Whole Foods. But any food can be made not kosher if it is prepared on or with equipment that is not, is not kosher or with other non-kosher ingredients. And so that's why it's important to look at a can because yes, you know, green beans are kosher, but what if that green bean has pork in it? So to read the ingredients on the cans and also to look for the hexures because some spices, preservatives and food coloring can come from non-kosher sources like beetles, bugs, and, and shellfish. Um, they also could be made in a, a factory that doesn't make just kosher food. And so the equipment, if it's not cash-rooted between canning the green beans and canning you know, the shellfish or whatever, um, then that is a problem. So always look for the, co- the hexures on things. Um, some people feel that eating kosher is expensive. Um, really, other than meat, most of the foods that you already buy uh, either have the hexure on it or there's something next to it on the shelf with the hexure. Um, Like I said, a lot of the Great Value, Aldi, and Trader Joe brands are are kosher already. Um, If you buy cereal, you can find for every cereal that's not kosher, you can find its kosher counterpart. Um, So really what you're buying is the same foods except for the meat and the cheese those could be a little more difficult to find but the other things that you buy at your grocery store um, you should easily be able to find something in the same price bracket of the same foods some people believe that kosher just means it's blessed by the rabbi Um, 
And it's not. There's so much more. And once you look into, especially the kosher meat side of it, there's a lot more work into producing that that chicken breast there that's kosher than one that isn't. Uh, yes, the the blessings from the rabbi are part of it, but it's not all of it. A lot of it is making sure that the equipment that's being used in the process of either canning or packaging the food, that it isn't contaminated with something that's non-kosher. Because once something non-kosher is put on, let's say, a chopping block that was used for something kosher, that chopping block now becomes not kosher. Um, so that is another thing that the rabbis come and do is they they check all of that. Uh, our son Matthew works at a salsa plant in San Antonio, Texas, and they make salsa for most of the big name salsa um, companies. It's funny that you know many of the big name ones are all manufactured at one location. Some of the recipes I hear are even the same from the like store brands, like maybe the Great Value brand might be the same as a higher priced name brand salsa, same ingredients, different packaging. Um, but he tells us that once a month the rabbi does come in. Um, goes through the kitchen, verifies all the ingredients um, for each batch, uh, the cleanliness of the place, and they stop all the machinery while he says his prayers. And I think that's pretty awesome um, that they respect him in that manner, and they do that, um, and they look forward to him coming each month. Um, One of the other things uh, that I have heard from many people, too, about uh, eating kosher is that most of the Torah and the Talmudic laws we have today were really just invented by rabbis over the course of history. But we know that we can go right back to Leviticus and we can see um, where Hashem has laid out the difference um, where we separate meat and dairy, Uh, the ways that an animal can be killed and it can't be strangled and and the different aspects from it. So um, what what I had found when I was doing some research that um, the Torah and the Talmud that we have today are identical to those that are found across the globe. They are the same in every country and continent. Even the countries like Yemen that were cut off from the bulk of the Jewish people for close to 2,000 years, they have the same Torah and the same Talmud. And so the thought that over the years, us telling these oral laws to each other, that they had gotten distorted through the years, the fact that different continents has the same laws, the same stories, the same, you know, uh, Torah and Talmud. Um, obviously, it was a divine thing from Hashem to maintain the integrity, but also that the Jewish people were very, very meticulous about not adding and not subtracting, but to only pass on what was told to them. Um, and I think that that is really important to realize that they they really are um, 
meticulous about making everything correct and not adding and subtracting from Hashem's word. So uh, in day five, we're up to day five now, um, there are some basic kosher concepts that I wanted to go over. And these concepts are universal. And it's funny because even some of the more lax Jews on other halakha, a lot of them will hold very true to most of these kosher concepts. There are a few that they don't. Um, but it, it seems like eating kosher defines the Jew. And it's nice to see that these laws and these um, concepts have remained through the centuries. So one of the very basic kosher concepts comes from Leviticus, and it tells us what animals are fit to eat. Um, and the main rule for that is it must chew the cud and have a split hoof. The Torah is very specific that it has to have both. And it goes over several animals, the pig and the hare and I think the camel, um, who may do one but don't do the other. So having a split hoof and chewing the cud, those are two of the most important things um, in kosher laws. And it seems like those are the two things that people tend to remember the most. Kosher meat and fowl must be slaughtered and inspected by a shochet, who is an expert ritual slaughterer. It then needs to be salted, drained for their blood. Um, sometimes that's hanging also uh, and, and soaked. A kosher animal that is killed by another animal dies on its own or is killed in any other way than a kosher slaughter is never considered kosher. Um, we are told in the Torah that we are not supposed to eat an animal that's flesh has been torn by another animal um, or have been suffocated. So there are, are rules about that. Kosher fowl include chicken, turkey, duck, and certain kinds of geese. Um, and of course, those also have to be salted and soaked and drained of their blood and checked for any kind of impurities. Um, the Torah is very sensitive to humane treatment of animals, and in this spirit, it does set up strict rules um, that must be followed. Um, the arteries of the neck must be severed very swiftly and ensure that the e animal is immediately unconscious and death is instantly followed. So I just love the fact that Hashem cares for the animals, even the animals that he has sanctioned for us to eat. He does still care about them. Um, and of course, those animals are internally inspected for disease and broken bones, soaked, salted, um, drained of the blood. Certain veins and fats are removed all before it can possibly be labeled kosher. Um, kosher fish also has its own rules to it, and they must have fins and scales. They must have both. Other sea creatures that are not kosher, um, they can't be eaten if they don't have both fins and scales. Some of the common kosher fish are salmon, tilapia, sea bass, 
flounder, trout, tuna, and whitefish, but there's many more. Um, one must see the fins and the scales for it to be kosher. So if you go to a meat market or fish, the fish section, and you see a filleted piece of meat up there, if it is not hectured, it can't be eaten. It's not considered kosher unless you can see that it has fins and a tail. Um, many of the packages of fish in the stores are hectured anyway, so that's pretty easy to find. Um, and part of to buying fish um, that's sitting there, you know, at the deli or the whatever you call it, the meat market area, um, as far as has that been put on a chopping block or on in an area where shellfish or crab was? Have they used knives to fillet that fish there that they might have used to use on a non-kosher piece of meat? Um, and so that's why it's always good to buy something that's prepackaged and hectured because we just don't know what happens at the, the meat markets like that. Um, unless it's a whole one, and then they probably didn't do anything but throw it on the ice. So that makes that safer to eat. Um, so shellfish, catfish, shrimp, swordfish, eel, lobster, um, they are not kosher, and they are forbidden for us to eat. And I'm sure there's more. Um, one of the things that I have found uh, for even people who are willing to eat shellfish and pork, for Jews in particular, who are willing to, to not eat kosher all the way, they still won't uh, eat meat and dairy together. And I think that's funny, but it, it just shows how strong that, that has been taught not to eat meat and dairy. Um, I think all of it should be taught a little better, but um, even the most lax Jew tends to not eat meat and dairy together. So eat meat and dairy is not allowed, um, and there's also a waiting period between eating them. So, um, and part of that is just not to, to mix it within your mouth. Um, so adults are to wait six hours after eating meat before eating a dairy food but only one hour between eating a dairy food and a meat. And the concept of that is, is that the meat could linger more in your teeth. It takes longer to digest. Where most dairy products are clearer, you know, if you're having a yogurt or a milk, um, even eating cheese digests much faster um, than eating meat. So there's less time if you ate cheese first than if you want to eat meat. Children should be trained from an early age to wait between eating meat and dairy. Children under three do not have to wait a fixed amount of time, but they should have their mouths rinsed out between eating meat and dairy. And I think through the years I've heard many reasons, you know, we all want to know why Hashem has said this. and. Of course, the answer is he said it because he's holy and he wants us to be holy. But um, one of the answers I've heard is that we don't combine life and death. And with meat being death and dairy being life, that we should not consume the two of them together.
so um, not only should we separate meat and dairy, but everything used in cooking and preparing meat and dairy. So as far as chopping blocks and spatulas, spoons and plates, serving utensils, uh, baking pans, all should be separated and labeled such so that they are not um, mistaken. Uh, one of the things that I do in my own kitchen is I have separate drawers. I have a drawer for my uh, silverware for meat and a dr separate drawer for my silverware uh, for dairy. Um, I have uh, a separate cupboard for my meat dishes and a separate cupboard for my dairy dishes. Um, today, one of the big things at the store is color coordinating things, and that's been a real blessing, especially because I have teenage boys that like to cook. And so when asking, you know, what spatula can I use? And I'll say, what color is it? You know, if it's red, you can use it. If it's blue, it's dairy. If it's green, it's parv. So um, we have color coordinated most of our utensils in our kitchen so that it's easy for my sons to be able to cook the food they want to. Um, dishes um, are in separate cabinets and, and pots and pans have medallions stuck to them. Um, that are, are heat resistant can go in the oven and I've just was at a point where I could separate in my kitchen so I have little separate bins for everything and it was a good chance to um, when we moved into our new home to set up the kitchen the way we wanted it and um, it was good to have the separate spaces and a lot more counter space and cupboard space in our old home. I'm not really sure how it would have happened. Um, we had a little small galley kitchen and um, it would have been tough, but where we're at now, there's I have empty cupboards, <laughs> but it's good to keep things separate and then, you know, they won't be m mixed up. Um, Commercially prepared foods must have a kosher hexure, and I think I handed out the little booklets. Um, that is not all-inclusive. Every day I shop, I see something different that's a different hexture. I think our world's getting smaller and things are being shipped um, from overseas or out of the state. Uh, but to try to stay on top of the different hexures, um, I always look, too, to see if something's marked halal. If it is both, I tend to not buy that. Um, so having our, our food that is kosher must be used with kosher utensils. Um, and if something non, a non-kosher ingredient falls into our, our soup, let's say we're making soup or we accidentally use it, um, then that becomes not kosher and that pan becomes non-kosher. And the other day I made the mistake because I was in a hurry and there was a pan sitting out and I washed it real quick and I threw butter in it. And now I have a pan I can't use because it wasn't a dairy pan. Um, so I have set it aside and um, because it has a non-stick uh, surface, 
it will go in the garage sale stuff to somebody who won't care. Um, and some mistakes that have been expensive. That one wasn't too bad of a one, but um, it happens. It happens all the time. And luckily, most of the time for me, it's a spatula, and I'll just toss it in two dollars. Go to go buy another one. Um, but when it's a pan, it kind of makes you think. Or if it's a prized. Um, bowl that you think can't be cash rooted. Most of the stuff I have can be cash rooted. Um, so I do have a few things um, sitting. I have a couple new things that, that need to be toppled. And I have a couple things that um, one of my kids made a mistake with and so we're going to recash root them. And So I just take them and I put them in a cabinet in the garage and I, I think when I get some time, I'll have to do it, but realize um, we're all learning and we do make mistakes and it just happens. Um, but the process of cash rooting your dishes and your pots and pans and silverware and all your utensils are to get them back clean again. And so um, back to like a neutral state. So if you have things um, like many of us did that we were preparing non-kosher food in, it's very hard to think we're going to throw out everything in our kitchen and buy all new kitchen um, pots and pans and stuff. Um, so what I personally did was uh, I took my canning, my big canning uh, pots, and I got them rip-roaring onto my stove, and I started a little production line. Um, whatever you want to cash root has to be cleaned and then set for 24 hours you cannot use it for 24 hours before you cash root it and that it needs to be boiled um big canning pots uh do wonder for that and things i had a few things that were very large and couldn't fit in but could be uh, i could put water in and boil it to the top um, I, I did that with uh, one thing and then after they have been boiled then they need to be mikvahed and the mikvahing um, it's really a tough thing to do in certain areas if you don't have live water um, we have a pond that flows in and out we're part of Shell Creek and so it flows in and flows out um, it has to be living water. Um, so in a, a perfect world, we would have a mikvah and the Sar Shalom, Texas Shiloh mikvah will solve that problem for them that they will be able to take their dishes and mikvah them in nice, beautiful, clean water. Um, us in Oklahoma are kind of stuck with finding a, a creek or something that we can make for them in. Um, I won't get into the whole process, but there are prayers, and, and that is kind of later down, down the road. But just to know that there is a process to making your pots and pans uh, kosher, uh, the process is to boiling them and then to make for them with a prayer and then cleaning them afterwards. Um, and we'll get into more detail of all of that. And part of that uh, is because the flavors and um, remains into the walls of the vessel. And so by boiling them, that removes all of that and takes it all back to a neutral state. 
Um, some there are some materials that cannot be cash rooted um, because they they just don't purge easily or they'll crack. And we will go over that list um, when we get closer to doing that. So next time we meet, we're going to make a practical plan to cash root our kitchens. And um, those people who haven't done it and are real serious and want to get at it, we will do a step-by-step plan next time we meet. Um, And so that you can take that plan home with you and execute it and know that you've done it properly. Um, And part of cash rooting our kitchens is just not our pots and pans, but our refrigerators, our microwaves, our countertops, our stovetops, our ovens. Um, If you have crock pots, uh, lots of things. I went out to a cupboard recently and went, oh, I have some party things, you know, that I don't normally ever use that are sitting in a cupboard that didn't get cash rooted. So it seems to me that I have this never ending process of cash rooting things that, you know, and part of it is because we haven't lived in our home all that long. And so some of the stuff isn't used daily, so has been packed away and not used. So I'm still getting through some of the things um, that need to be cash rooted. But it's not a hard process once you you set your mind to it. Um, Things to just always remember is is that meat and dairy can't mix. Um, And that's kind of the big thing to always remember about that. Um, So now that we're buying kosher food, our next step will be cash rooting our kitchens because we don't want to cash root our kitchens and then bring something not kosher in and then have to re-cash root our kitchens again. So now it's really, I, I feel like I drill my kids when they bring something home. My one son brought some ice cream I didn't recognize as being kosher and he's digging it out and putting it in the bowl and I'm like, wait, is that kosher? And he looks at me like, well, of course, and I'm checking for the hexure, and yes, I found the hexure, and I was very delighted to know that the Reese's Pieces ice cream is kosher. Um, But those of us who have been through the cash rooting process, you just don't want to do it again um, real soon. Uh, So I always just kind of grimace when a mistake happens, but I know they do, and they will. Um, we just have to move on and just re-cash root that dish. Um, and, you know, I, I, I had a dish that was supposed to be parv, and somebody put something dairy in it, and I'm like, I'm not going to re-cash root that. It's just now dairy because you can go from something that's parve to dairy. Um, you can't go the other way. So for me, it was easier to just call it dairy, put the sticker on it. So while you're, you know, waiting for our next class, there's a couple things that I want you to do. Still continue to go through your cupboards and your refrigerator and look for anything that might not have a hexure on it. And the other thing is take a look at your kitchen. What drawers can you empty out or rearrange so that you can have uh, silverware for meat and silverware for dairy? Um, Where could you put two different sets of pots and pans? Um, where could you put two different sets of dishes? And a lot of times, like for me, it was just rearranging the cupboards. It wasn't um, all that hard once I 
figure that, you know, I don't eat meat a lot, so the ones up high were going to be the meat dishes and the stuff down low that we eat more often were going to be dairy. So that's good to do before the day that we want to cash root the kitchens. Go through and figure out where you are going to place certain things and maybe go through and see what things are not going to be able to be cash rooted. Um, things like wooden spatulas, cutting boards, um, plastic things, spatulas, a lot of those just ditch and start over. Um, there is a list in the book, and if you don't have the book, I'm going to make some copies of some of those pages for next we- next time we meet. Yes, I will make some pages of the things. There are things that um, can't be mikvahed, that can be cash-rooted, but don't need to be mikvahed. Some things that can be mikvahed without a blessing, some things that have to have the blessing. So there's... You know, there's different criteria depending on the material of the of the utensil or dish that um, whether or not can be cash rooted. So I will make some copies of those pages and one of the blessings because there is a blessing if you're just mikveing one item, and then there's a blessing if you're mikveing multiple items. And yes, so it's different. Um, so I'll make sure that everybody has the list of, you know, what can be mikvahed and what can't and the different prayers for the next time we meet. All right. So I am going to shut off our podcast and I will take whatever questions and I hope to see you all next week. Thank you for coming.